Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless possible. Dunham has a brilliant mind and a knack for pissing people off. She's behind some of our generation's most celebrated work, but also cringeworthy blunders. How the hell did she get so famous and what do we make of her now? Welcome to Scandal from Shameless Podcast, the stories of the biggest celebrity controversies revisited. Hello. Hi. This has been very highly Highly requested. requested. (laughs) Very, very highly requested. Lena Dunham is one of those people who I am endlessly intrigued about. Oh, my God. Endlessly, endlessly, endlessly intrigued about. I mean, if we're talking about scandal, much like when we kind of spoke about Gwyneth Paltrow, she has a lot of scandals in her public record. She has literally so many that the cut has published multiple listicles about all of her scandals across her career. And despite writing 33 pages of notes, thank you, Eilish Gilligan, our researcher, we're not going to fit every single scandal into this series. No, I think that's what's so hard for us is there is so much more. We had to be relatively discerning mm. when we kind of tackled this because we only had two episodes to work with. So we had to be very discerning about working out what we were covering and what we weren't. I think we've done a pretty good job at covering the big ticket items. I think we have as well. I think for me personally as well, I'm excited for this series because I came into it wondering why do I feel annoyed by Lena Dunn? Why do I find her irritating? Is my irritation justified? I'm interested to see how I feel at the end of this series. Obviously, we research it alongside Eilish, but I'm still kind of in my head about that. I think there's always a really important question to be asked as well about internalized misogyny and Mm. what role that plays, if at all. Like if Mm. we're talking about being annoyed at a woman like Lena Dunham, as you say, is that a separate thing to internalise misogyny because she's done... Like some really, really cringeworthy, shady made, things. Totally, exactly. And I think it will be interesting to see where we land at the end of these two episodes. Shall we jump right into it and rewind all the way back to 1986? Let's do it. Alrighty, Mish. So it's May 13, 1986, and Lena Dunham is born in New York City to parents Carol and Laurie. Now, Carol is a painter, and Laurie is an artist and photographer, and they were artsy or are artsy people. Very artsy people. As per The New Yorker, Laurie Simmons makes photographs in which dolls and dollhouse furniture are arranged to an unsettling effect. Carol Dunham makes exuberant antique paintings that often feature a masculine figure with a penis where his nose should be. I'm obsessed with that quote and I'm (laughs) obsessed with that explanation because a kid that grows up around this much art and this much sort of call it progressive art, Mm. I guess, is going to kind of think differently about the world. Now, Lena's family is incredibly tight-knit. She lived in her parents' New York City loft deep into her 20s and has had a, a very open, I guess, relationship with her parents and younger sibling, Cyrus. 
Now, it sort of seems very much like Alina, and I don't know if this will surprise any of our listeners, is one of those kids or was one of those kids who preferred sitting at the adult's table rather than the (laughs) kid's table. Here's a quote we found from her mum speaking to The New Yorker. She always sort of had a weird ability to be perceptive about adults that was sort of disturbing. Kids would be in the room over at one end and Lena would be with the adult saying, how is your divorce going? (laughs) I can so see that. Same. A friend of the family also told The New Yorker, Lena was happier with adults partly because her parents treated her as an adult. In that family, it's almost as if everybody is exactly the same size. Look, I think it's a kind of family culture that will make a child mature and well-spoken. I also think treating people like they're all the same, children and adults, could breed a sense of arrogance in a child as well. Yeah, or perhaps Self-importance. Like, uh, yeah, a slight sense of entitlement, right, mm. to the world before you are an adult. It's a super interesting way to consider parenting, and I do really adore that quote as well. Lena went to high school in New York with Jemima Kirk, who eventually starred in Girls, as we know, alongside her. They actually met in seventh grade. Jemima Kirk told The New Yorker, in high school, she was almost never able to hang out. She would say, I need to go and hang with my parents because we're all watching the L word tonight. <laughs> she was obviously a precocious child and teenager surrounded by all of these artists and all of this art. So it was no real surprise when she wanted to do something similar. After high school, she attended the Liberal Arts College, Oberlin College in Ohio, where she studied creative writing. As a student, she also really took to creating several short films. Yeah, now in one of these short films, Lena was wearing a small bikini and brushing her teeth in a public fountain on the college campus. Now, after a little while in this kind of short film, she's approached by a security guard who asks her to stop. And so she wraps herself in a towel and the film ends. She uploaded this film. It was called The Fountain to YouTube in 2007. She was 21 years old and it went pretty viral, Mish. Yeah. The Fountain gained so much traction that within a year of it being live on YouTube, it had 1.5 million views. Look, I know a lot of YouTube videos have more views, but we're talking about a college student's like artsy short Short film. film. 100%. It's getting mass reach for something that was probably never designed for mass reach. A large part of the conversation in the YouTube videos comment section was about Lena's body. Lena told the New Yorker about this. There were just pages of YouTube comments about how fat I was or how not fat I was or saying, that's not a fat girl. Go to Detroit and see a real fat girl. Yeah. So after a year of nasty comments, she actually decided to delete the video. She explained in that New Yorker piece that we've been quoting a bit so far in this episode, (laughs) I didn't want you to Google me. And the first thing you see is a debate about whether my breasts are misshapen. Of course, as a girl, you take these things to heart. I live in this constant state off. This is what I look like. Fuck you. And being like, I'm so sorry. I want to cover myself up. Mm, the negative comments didn't completely deter Lena though, because at just 23 years old, she achieved the kind of fame that people work their entire lives for. Rather than be discouraged by those YouTube comments on the fountain, she decided to include the idea in her next big project. It was a feature film called Tiny Furniture that she wrote, directed, and starred in herself. Yes. So Tiny Furniture was shot in November 2009, and she was 23 years old. She had a budget of $25,000. Some sources do say it was a loan from her parents. And it was filmed in her parents' loft in New York and did feature her real family as cast members. The film itself was kind of like semi-autobiographical and followed this character, Aura, who was played by Lena, who had just graduated from college with an arts degree and was trying to figure out who she really was as a person. It also featured Jemima Kirk in a supporting role. (laughs) Definitely inspired by real life. Totally. For sure. When Tiny Furniture premiered at South by Southwest in March 2010, it was met with almost universal praise. I mean, we need to stop on this fact. The fact it's even premiering at South by Southwest is remarkable. She submitted it and it was accepted. Like to even get to this level, let alone get to the level of critical appraisal is nuts. It's crazy. It won actually the coveted award for best narrative feature at the festival, which made Lena this incredibly buzzworthy figure. I think the only thing you can consider when you think about this is like, she was like this 
Wonderkind. Mm. Like she was the next big thing and people weren't shy about saying that. I mean, while the festival was running, the New York Times ran a glowing profile of her. This <laughs> is crazy so, to me. Yeah, it's like a complete shooting star kind of story. The profile written by David Carr was the first piece of major press that Lena had received. And we're going to read you some passages from it. I mean, first of all, David Carr was and is a highly respected columnist at the New York Times, as well as a best-selling author. So his opinion and public backing of Lena Dunham already meant a lot. He wrote this, Miss Dunham is a keen writer, creating angular, quietly weaponized dialogue that her characters use to maim one another. While Miss Dunham's film may reflect the quandaries of a 23-year-old, there is nothing juvenile about its execution. Tiny Furniture brings to mind Larry David's ability to take his own ticks and add humor and stakes to make them matter to others. How's that? A comparison to Larry David. At 23. Yeah, 24 (laughs) or whatever it was, early 20s. David Carr actually went on to become a pretty significant figure in Lena's life after this was published because as per Gorka, the pair actually became friends and went out to dinner about a month after South by Southwest. So it's sort of not all that surprising, right, that on the heels of all this crazy, crazy buzz, HBO commissioned Lena for a blind script deal, as in the network wasn't purchasing a particular show or project, but they were more investing in her as a writer for her ideas or whatever she may come up with. And they essentially said, all we want is first dibs on anything you create. It's sort of interesting. I recommended on the show a few months ago a book, a memoir, I should say, by Patty Lynn, who was an American screenwriter. Mm. And the way that Patty Lynn, who wrote on shows like Friends and Desperate Housewives and Breaking Bad, speaks about how hard it is to get script deals, to even get a blind script deal, kind of puts this in real perspective for me to say this is crazy. Yeah. The most senior seasoned writers don't get this. No. The only other woman I can think of who I know who got a blind script deal is Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who of yes. course we know through Killing Eve and Fleabag, who I think is like a genius. This is genius level stuff. Yeah. Well, Patty Lynn said in her book that her partner or her ex-partner at the time got a blind script deal after working on Seinfeld for the last oh. like six or seven years. Like, you know, the biggest show mm. in the world and writing jokes for the biggest show in the world. But these <laughs> are the kinds of people who are getting these jobs. So... David Carr told producer, director and screenwriter Judd Apatow, then very well known for films like The 40-Year-Old Version, Knocked Up and Anchorman, to watch Tiny Furniture. Yes. Because David Carr apparently was Lena's biggest cheerleader. (laughs) As per Gorka, it's true that Judd Apatow didn't decide to work with Dunham because of who her parents were. Instead, he chose to work with Dunham thanks to David Carr. In 2010, Dunham had a blind script deal for HBO. What she was missing was the imprimatur of a Hollywood heavyweight. Meanwhile, Apatow, who was friends with David Carr, was asking the Times columnist if he knew of any promising up-and-comers. David Carr did no one. Now, Judd Apatow loved tiny furniture. Lena actually spoke about the moment he reached out to her in an interview with GQ. She said... The title of the email was from Judd Apatow. I thought it was my friend Isabel pranking me. He said, I saw your movie. I cried, which is not rare for me, but I laughed out loud, which is rare. Then he said a few things he liked that were really nice. Then he said, if you ever want someone to give you a lot of money and screw everything up, we should talk. Yeah, so now she had two industry heavyweights singing her praises both privately and publicly. For example, in August 2010, David Carr tweeted. I love how David Carr is getting more mentions on this episode than, yeah, or Lena herself right now. He tweeted, saw Judd Apatow today and Lena Dunham's name came up a lot. That kid gets around. (laughs) Not to have like a super earnest take, but I do kind of like that these two Hollywood heavyweights have recognised something in a really young woman and are really holding her up. Yeah, I mean, all you ever hear from any industry is that, like, you are more likely to mentor 
or even hire for a job someone who is very much like you. Mm-hmm. So at the very least, I agree. Less than a month later, Deadline ran an exclusive news piece with the headline, HBO Greenlights, Judd Apatow, Lena Dunham, Coming of Age, Comedy Pilot. The piece read, HBO has given a pilot order to a half-hour comedy project from comedy heavyweight Judd Apatow and hot young prodigy Lena Dunham. The 24-year-old Dunham wrote the untitled comedy about the assorted humiliations and rare triumphs of a group of girls in their early 20s. She will also direct the pilot, star in it, and co-executive produce. Yeah, so in March 2012, and now 25-year-old Lena went back to South by Southwest, and this time it was for the buzzy premiere of her brand new television project, Girls. As per New York Magazine, it's the South by Southwest Festival's first ever launch of a TV series, and buzz has been rising all week, helped along by a clever HBO campaign sending girls' bicycles around Austin, Texas. In front of the Paramount Theatre, there's an actual red carpet, something not present when Dunham debuted her breakthrough movie, Tiny Furniture, back in 2010. Yeah, the response to girls was almost universally positive. And it was kind of pretty much like one of those rare times where something is very hyped, but then the project or piece of content ends up actually being that good. Yeah, like the hype is justified. Yeah. Let's read some of the first takes after the episode premiered. This from New York Magazine. From the moment I saw the pilot of Girls, I was a goner, a convert. My heart sped up. I laughed out loud. I got the characters. Four friends adrift in a modern New York of unpaid internships and bad sex on dirty sofas. As a person who has followed for more than 20 years recurrent maddening debates about the lives of young women, this series felt to me like a gift. Wow. We also have had this from The Hollywood Reporter. The new HBO series from Lena Dunham is one of the most original, spot-on, no-missed-step series in recent memory. For her part, Dunham, who writes, directs, stars in it, created and executive produces the series, is a talent as unique and refreshing to the medium as Louis C.K. Obvious caveat, Louis C.K. had not been exposed for the things he was exposed for at this time. This was 2012. Yes. (laughs) Now... Remember as well, this was after the first three episodes. Like, people had only seen like an hour and a half of this show. Mm. From early on, the nudity in Girls, particularly of Lena's character Hannah, was like a massive point of contention. Now, it's sort of hard to make a comment on like what the general consensus was because opinions were so divided and I also think critics are so loud Mm. that it's hard to kind of get a sense of how big the criticism was. But basically, critics of this were taken aback by how often Lena's character was naked throughout the show. Now, (laughs) to make this really meta, (laughs) critics of the critics. Yes. We're with you. We're with you. (laughs) Did make the comparison or did point out, right, that if you are put off by how naked Lena's character was in Girls and not put off by the nudity in Game of Thrones, Mm. then what's that saying about the kind of naked bodies we want to see on screen? A hundred percent. As per The Guardian, Lena Dunham's nudity in those scenes isn't read as titillating because her body looks different than the kind of body that's typically used to signal this scene is titillating. We're so used to a very particular kind of body serving as shorthand for sex that our interpretation of a nude scene is less about the scene itself than the body in it. And that's exactly why Dunham's nudity is so radical. It would be really tricky for Lena Dunham to see this commentary, even if stuff like that from The Guardian is roundly helpful. It would be really tricky for her to see her own body's nudity described as radical. radical. Yeah. Like, it's very, it would be discombobulating for sure because it's like, it's just my body. For the greater good, I get it. For the individual self, that would like it just sting it'd be really burning I agree now of course some people loved this show critics loved it but Girls was very roundly criticised from the jump for its lack of representation and this Mm. was a big conversation point how's this from New York Times journalist Jenna Wortham The problem with girls is that while the show reaches and succeeds in many ways to show female characters that are not caricatures, it feels alienating. A party of four engineered to appeal to a very specific subset of the television viewing audience when the show has the potential to be so much bigger than that. And that's a huge fucking disappointment. 
The argument has been made that smart women on screen are already enough of a minority to make up for the lack of women of colour. Nope, not good enough. This is more than a stock photo op. It's more important than that. Mm. Now, unfortunately, girls writer Leslie Arfin decided to respond to this article in a downright bizarre way. She wrote a tweet that everyone took to be about Gemma's piece because it was published very soon after the piece came out that read, what really bothered me most about Precious was that there was no representation of me. Now, of course, Precious was a film platforming a woman of colour. And so what is she trying to say? She's trying to say that it's all the same thing. It's not. I mean, The Atlantic kind of wrote about this and made comments saying, do you get it? See, Girls, set in New York City, is about four rich, thin white girls. Precious, also set in New York City, is about one poor, fat black girl who is sexually abused by her father and lives in the projects. It's a funny joke because Arfin thinks that she would never actually interact with a person like Precious. The idea of an Arfin character in Precious, hilarious. Mm. Like, what would drive someone like Leslie Arfin? To make this comment, and to, or ra- rather than sitting with the criticism, to think, yeah, it's fair, fair, You're like, or even Good just point. saying nothing, yeah. Even like, if she felt poorly about the article, which is a whole other issue, I'm not going to thought police her to say she can't be annoyed or whatever. But to then take her annoyance and put it on Twitter just says something not great to me. Oh, it says a lot. I think in response to this particular criticism, which would continue to follow Lena throughout the entirety of Girls' tenure on air. Lena said during an interview on NPR, I take that criticism very seriously. This show isn't supposed to feel exclusionary. It's supposed to feel honest and it's supposed to feel true to many aspects of my experience. But for me to ignore that criticism and not take it in would really go against my beliefs and my education in so many things. And I think the liberal arts student in me really wants to engage in a dialogue about it. But as I learn about engaging with the media, I realise it's not the same as sitting in a seminar talking things through at Oberlin. Every quote is sort of used and misused and placed and misplaced and I really wanted to make sure I spoke sensitively to this issue. Yeah, she said more and we're going to play you a snippet of what was said next. Just a heads up though, this is a long one, but we think it's important to include it all. I wrote the first season primarily by myself and, um, you know, I co-wrote a few episodes, but, you know, I am a half Jew, half wasp, and I wrote two Jews and two wasps. Like I really, and something that I wanted to avoid was sort of tokenism in casting and not speaking, you know, if I had one of the four girls, for example, if she was African-American, I feel like, you know, not that the experience of an African-American girl and a white girl living in Brooklyn are drastically different, but there has to be specificity to that experience and specificity to that at this point, I wasn't able to speak to. And so I thought about it. I really wrote the show from sort of a gut level place and each character was a piece of me and or based on, you know, someone very close to me. And um, only later did I realize that it was that it was four white girls. And and um, and so as much as I can say it was an accident, it was an accident. But I also later as as the criticism came out, I thought I hear this and I want to respond to it. And I also, you know, the show, I don't know if this, I want, this is a hard issue to speak to because all I want to do is um, sound sensitive and not say anything that will, um, that will horrify anyone or make them feel more isolated. But I did write something that was, uh, that was super specific to my experience. And I always want to avoid rendering an experience I can't speak to. I, there's so much here. I struggle with that because I think it exposes something within Lena Dunham that is discriminatory. Yeah, I agree. And I think what really struck me even about the first quote that I read out is there's something so interesting about taking really genuine criticism about how you're not representing the world in a way that makes people feel seen and to make it sound like you wanted to engage in a liberal arts student debate. Mm. Like, I'm just like, what? why are we talking about your time at Oberlin College and like the mm. fact that you want to be able to engage this in a dialogue that's really helpful and handy? Like, I think that that exposes to me an inability for you to just like sit with the criticism and listen to it and really fundamentally understand what people are saying. Mm. The other thing about this is it speaks very much to when there are projects like this, the importance of having so many different types of personalities writing it. But when you've got one person like Lena Dunham, who's 25 or whatever, being told that they can 
write, star, direct, co-executive produce, this whole thing is just going to be Lena's one mind. Yeah, myopic. It will yeah. be myopic by design of it coming from the perspective of one person. Researcher Eilish made a few good points about this. She says that Lena could have consulted a writer of colour to discuss what could have been done about the diversity problem, that Judd Apatow or someone high up at HBO could look at the lack of diversity in the writing and production staff and realise that that's probably where some systemic issues came in. It's one of those things where things could have been done, but it was kind of approached from a shrug of the shoulders or like a half-hearted attempt to do things about it and it's no surprise to me that girls copped this criticism for its entire run. Yeah 100%. Now regardless of all of it and regardless of the fact that the show was dogged by it, Girls was a hit. The final episode of the first season was watched by over a million people in the US and by May 2012, which was well before the first season had ended, HBO had already announced that it was renewed for season two. Now, with girls being literally everywhere online, so was Lena Dunham's name. And so before we dive deeper into her career, we need to chat about her love life. But first, a word from today's sponsor. So 2012 was a huge year for a then 26-year-old Lena Dunham and it was huge beyond the success of Girls because it turns out that that year was when she actually also started dating the then 28-year-old musician Jack Antonoff. Yeah, so at the time Jack Antonoff was actually a relatively unknown guitarist in the band Fun. He was not yet known for his work with Taylor Swift. Their working (laughs) relationship wouldn't really begin until at least a year later. Apparently, Lena and Jack were set up on a blind date by Jack's sister, the fashion designer Rachel Antonoff and the comedian Mike Berbiglia sometime in mid-2012. By early September, Us Weekly had broke the news of their relationship. Yeah, here's what Gorka wrote at the time. Hipster hookup, writes Us (laughs) Weekly, because what are two young white people if not hipsters? Fun, for what it's worth, seems like exactly the kind of band that Lena Dunham would be crazy about for reasons I can't really put my finger on. Cool, but not actually cool. Songs that sound like they might come from musicals. (laughs) Okay. I mean, I think this says a lot about Jack Antonoff's fame at this point, which was that it was, I would say, relatively non-existent. Is that fair? It sounds like he was an alternative musician at this point, that he wasn't writing commercial music, which is nuts to me that he then ended up being at least partly behind some of the biggest pop hits of, of the all, next decade. I was going to say of all time. <laughs> I don't know if anyone's going to agree with me on that. He was but behind Cruel Summer. And, so. and Getaway Car, so come for me. So it's kind of hard to pinpoint the exact moment the world started to get tired of Lena Dunham, but it is fair to say that by the time she was publicly dating Jack Antonoff, the haters were at least being acknowledged in articles about her. And I think this is like a really interesting thing to note. Take this from a Yahoo Life article that came out in Feb 2013, just after Fun won Best New Artist at the Grammys. So obviously not that hipster or that niche. (laughs) (laughs) Not everyone was as kind about Lena's presence at the Grammys. One tweeter, realising Lena and Jack were dating, asked, the most hipster couple ever? Another complained of her overexposure. After a while, it just feels like Lena Dunham is straddling America's face and grinding us unwillingly. Jesus. Very sexualized criticism. Very sexualized. Also, why does hipster keep coming up as I like the know. biggest criticism? But then I keep thinking about this. 2012 and 2013 was a time that we spoke a lot we about did. hipsters. No, this is the first time I've been reminded of this. Being a hipster was not a good cool thing, thing to be. I don't even know what a hipster is. I wonder if it was shorthand for try hard. Yeah, I don't know. I think so. Now, speaking about their relationship to Pride Source, Jack said, There is nothing awkward or clunky about our relationship. I think what probably happens when you put two awkward and clunky people together is that their awkward, clunky world seems like the normal world. And I think that's something that's nice about our relationship. Mm. I mean, I also lent into it to be like, oh, we're such weirdos. We're so, we're so awkward and yeah. clunky. Now, Lena spoke pretty candidly about their relationship to the media. She told Interview Magazine, it's totally fine to state his name. It's Jack Antonoff. I know there's some rule that you're not supposed to talk about your boyfriend publicly because it seems like all starlets under the age of 33 have decided not to do that. But if you're in love with someone great, 
then I don't understand why you wouldn't tell everybody. You don't have to post naked pictures of them on the internet or tweet pictures of your Christmas celebration. But I feel like, in a way, he's my best advertisement. So I'm like, why would I not tell people who ask? There's a tiny, tiny element of pick me in what she's doing that I think contributes to the annoyance factor. I think it's naivety. I think it's not realising why people don't speak about their partners Mm. because, like, fame is relatively new to her. Being in a relationship that's in the public eye is relatively new to her. And I really appreciate that last line when it's like, but I feel in a way he's my best advertisement. So I'm like, why would I not tell people who ask? Mm. It would be very hard when you feel like your relationship is the best part of your life. You're excited about it. To not tell people, but there is a real level of naivety as to why people don't. Yeah, and I think the naivety is coupled with a bit of arrogance to be like, I know there's some rule that you're not supposed to talk about this. It's kind of like, instead of just being like, I'm choosing to do this, it's all also slinging a side shot at the people who have made a different decision to you. And I think that's where a lot of people struggle with Lena Dunham. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Now, at this point in our timeline, we sort of have to rewind ever so slightly back. I'm sorry, we hate doing this, but to tell the whole story. (laughs) You guys have no idea what goes into these. surgery to get these timelines along the way. (laughs) Now, we're going slightly back to October 2012 when the New York Times broke the news of the mammoth bidding war for Lena's first book. My God, as per the Times, Random House has acquired a book by Lena Dunham, the 26-year-old writer, actor and filmmaker, in one of the most heated auctions of the year. Bidding climbed past 3.5 million, several publishers who were involved in the negotiations said. Random House described the book as in the tradition of Helen Gurley Brown, David Sedaris and Nora Ephron, offering frank and funny advice on everything from sex to eating to travelling to work. Yes, so Lena's debut book, Not That Kind of Girl, was acquired by Random House for at least $3.5 million. Some outlets reported the final number could have been up to three point. Eight. Whoa! That's just ridiculous. <laughs> Do you reckon they? Ma- they reckon they probably made their money back. Yeah, I bought this book. Yeah, I, the only people that I know that got advances in the millions are like Prince Harry and the the Obamas. Yeah, like this is just insane to me. So if we fast forward slightly to 2014, when Lena was 28, not that kind of girl came out in the world, and. It was everywhere. Did you read it? No. Oh, my God. This shocks me that you didn't read this. Because this falls into the same category of books that How to Murder Your Life by Kat Marnell fell into. And like Girl Boss by Sophia Amoruso. Yes. Those kind of like zeitgeisty young woman. Here's the no holds barred story. I lapped this book. Right. Oh, my God. Lapped it up. This surprises me for some reason. I don't know why. Yeah. Now, critics were generally complimentary of not that kind of girl while conceding that Lena wasn't doing anything particularly revolutionary in this essay collection. This was also an opportunity, Zara, for critics to dissect what it was about Lena that maybe people didn't warm to. Yeah, as per The Guardian at the time, Dunham's fans and detractors have lionised and demonised the 20-something to the point that she now represents whatever the hell you want. The blogging generation, feminism, misogyny. Just stick a reference to Dunham in your zeitgeisty feature and the youth-obsessed media will clamour to publish it. At the other end of the spectrum, blogs such as Gorka and Jezebel, staffed largely by people Dunham's age, can't kick her enough. The biggest complaint about her is that she represents all that is wrong with an overprivileged, nepotistic, Caucasian-focused slice of America. Wow. Wow. (laughs) White to the line. What a line. Now, all of this was in a book review for Not That Kind of Girl. So it was like the book was being reviewed, but maybe more so, Lena Dunham, the person, was being reviewed by the media. Yeah, and I understand why that got messy because a lot of this stuff in the book was very personal. So Mm. it's like, how do you separate the writing from the person? She never has even to this day. The Guardian piece went on. Dunham describes her need to share as a compulsion. I have to tell my stories in order to stay sane, she writes. But she also needs an editor or an Adam who can say to her, great, but perhaps we don't actually need to publish a 10-page chapter consisting purely of your food diary. She has a brilliant talent who will write better books than this and really who can blame her for taking the money and running. It's a shame, though, that her US publishers didn't take more time with her instead of rushing to cash in on the Lena Dunham industry. Interesting. Pretty scathing. Also, I know so many people will know this, but when that passage referred to an Adam, 
That's not some sexist throwaway line that this person put in. Adam refers to a character in Girls who would often pull Lena up on her shit. Yeah. So regardless of anything the critics had to say, not that kind of girl shot to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. And Lena was in the middle of an extensive book tour when controversy knocked on her door. Now, before we jump into the next bit, we do want to give you a content note that we will be discussing themes of sexual abuse and assaults and child sexual abuse. Yeah. Now, I think what's really clear with this book is that Lena is very typically open and laissez-faire with intimate details of her life. And this ended up becoming the source of a lot of controversy, particularly stories she shared featuring her sibling, Cyrus. Now, for transparency, Cyrus uses they, them pronouns. Lena's book was written prior to their gender affirmation, but we will be using their current pronouns throughout this conversation. Yeah. Now, this controversy and commentary actually began in right-wing media websites. On October 29, 2014, a website called Truth Revolt, which at the time was actually helmed by the far-right commentator Ben Shapiro, ran a story with this headline, Lena Dunham describes sexually abusing her sibling. The sensationalised story included a passage from Lena's memoir in which she described looking at Cyrus's vagina when Lena was seven and Cyrus was still a baby. Yeah, I'm going to read this passage in question. It's a little on the longer side, Mm. but I think it's kind of important for us to have all the context. Do we all have uteruses? I asked my mother when I was seven. Yes, she told me we're born with them and with all our eggs, but they start out very small and they aren't ready to make babies until we're older. I look at my sibling, now a slim, tough one-year-old and at their tiny belly. I imagine the eggs inside of them, like the sack of spider eggs in Charlotte's Web and their uterus the size of a thimble. Does their vagina look like mine? I guess so, my mother said, just smaller. One day, as I sat in our driveway in Long Island playing with blocks and buckets, my curiosity got the best of me. Cyrus was sitting up, babbling and smiling, and I leaned down between their legs and carefully spread open their vagina. They didn't resist, and when I saw what was inside, I shrieked. My mother came running. Mama, Mama, Cyrus has something in there. My mother didn't bother asking why I'd opened Cyrus's vagina. That was within the spectrum of things I did. She just got on her knees and looked for herself. It quickly became apparent that Cyrus had stuffed six or seven pebbles in there. My mother removed them patiently while Cyrus cackled, thrilled that their prank had been a success. Mm. So in the piece from Truth Revolt, there are a couple of things we need to note. First of all, Truth Revolt incorrectly stated that Lena was 17 when this occurred, which was not true. As we said, she was seven. And incorrectly claiming that Lena was a teenager when this occurred Gave the anecdote a lot more negative energy and ownership over an event that I think a lot of children find themselves engaging with. Yeah, Truth Revolt also highlighted the phrase that Cyrus didn't resist in their quote-unquote reporting, which when paired with the headline and the false claim that Lena was 17, gave this entire anecdote meaning that wasn't there. I mean, regardless of the truth of the situation, the article from Truth Revolt did the rounds amongst right-wing circles and did cause a massive stir online. Now, it's worth noting that in media reporting on this situation, many outlets asked developmental experts to weigh in on whether or not this situation would be considered abuse. And speaking to Slate, developmental psychologist Rich Savin-Williams said, this is clearly not a case of abuse. Children have been doing this stuff forever and ever and ever and ever, and they will continue to do it forever and ever and ever. Mm. For Gorkar, Sam Rubenstein, a psychotherapist who specialised in childhood abuse, had the same line of thinking. The quote was, I think you have to take into consideration Lena's age, her history, and the idea that at that age, unless you've gone through severe sexual trauma, there's really almost nothing sexual about it. The same explanation could be used for grabbing the dog's tail. It's the same type of coercion. Just because it's in the sexual venue, people want to attach something to it, but it's almost totally different. It's an innocent type of thing. Yeah, for their part, Cyrus stood up for their sister on Twitter in the days following in a series of 
tweets, they said, heteronormativity deems certain behaviours harmful and others normal. The state and media are always invested in maintaining that. As a queer person, I'm committed to people narrating their own experiences, determining for themselves what has and has not been harmful. Today, like every other day, is a good day to think about how we police the sexualities of young women, queer and trans people. This might have been a situation that faded away after a few rounds of the news cycle. If Lena hadn't then jumped on the situation with her own statement, maybe what we're about to say is unfair because Lena wanted to defend herself and has a right to, but I'll be interested to know what the listeners think. So here's what Lena tweeted in her own defence. The right-wing news story that I molested my sibling isn't just LOL. It's really fucking upsetting and disgusting. And by the way, if you were a little kid and never looked at another little kid's vagina, well, congrats to you. Usually this is stuff I can ignore, but don't demean sufferers. Don't twist my words. Back the fuck up, bros. I told a story about being a weird seven-year-old. I bet you have some two old men that I'd rather not hear. And yes, this is a rage spiral. Sometimes I get so mad I burn right up. Also, I wish my sibling wasn't laughing so hard. Yeah, look, I can totally understand why you'd have so much anger when you feel like people are... I mean, people were spreading lies about her because they were changing the age of things, they were changing the meaning of the story. It's interesting to me by this point in her career that this wouldn't be something you'd just send to your group chat and the apology you put out would be a bit more tempered purely for PR purposes. I am not saying that she's not allowed to have the rage that she has. I am dumbfounded throughout the course of Lena's career Mm. that the apologies she put out or the statements she put out or whatever we want to call them weren't slightly different. Yeah. Now, audiences pointed to another instance in the book off the back of this tweet from Lena where she wrote that as a child she would bribe Cyrus with, and I quote, three pieces of candy if I could kiss them on the lips for five seconds. Basically, anything a sexual predator might do to woo a small girl. Naturally, I think this riled up audiences more. Yeah, it did. It did. They were they were very edgy stories. Is they that, were. Is that, is that, I think no. It's it's really really hard because I think I mean we're about to give you guys. I'm about to read you guys out another passage from the book. I think I feel a lot of conflicting ways about this. The seeing your young sibling's vagina and feeling curious, I think, is one thing. To bring in verbiage about sexual predators when you're trying to kiss your sibling is another. And then we've got this third anecdote that Lena gave about sharing a bed with Cyrus until she was 17. She wrote, I shared a bed with Cyrus until I was 17 years old. They were afraid to sleep alone and would begin asking me around five o'clock every day whether they could sleep with me. I put on a big show of saying no, taking pleasure in watching them beg and sulk, but eventually I always relented. Their sticky, muscly body thrashed beside me every night as I read Anne Sexton, watched reruns of SNL, sometimes even as I slipped my hand into my underwear to figure some stuff out. I don't know how I feel. I genuinely don't know how I feel. I remember reading this when the book came out and feeling confused and shocked I think so much of this is put in for shock factor and therefore it's difficult for Lena to turn around and say, don't have an emotional reaction to that shock. Yeah, I agree. I think it was understandable, as I said before, that she was mad when people were not telling the truth of these anecdotes, mm. which did Twisting happen. It, yeah. yeah, I completely agree. But I would also be lying if I didn't read that and think, oh, that's kind of a strange story to share. That is like my gut reaction. It's strange. And I, I think where I seize up, is when she's describing Cyrus's body, their sticky, muscly body thrashed beside me. There's something visceral about it that I find it's, really uncomfortable. It's jarring. Like when I first read that, I could, my body sort of tensed a bit. I was like, oh, yeah. goodness. I think we have to be honest about that. Now, for what it's worth, this passage from Bustle does a good job of adding context to this section. Critics of Dunham have also taken issue with the fact that she masturbated while her sibling was asleep beside her. I will not pretend that it's not weird if we define weird as something slightly unusual or awkward, but it is not abnormal if we define abnormal as falling outside healthy thought and behaviour. At 17, one does not have all the privacy in the world, especially when sharing the room with a younger sibling. Maybe Dunham could have gone to masturbate in the bathroom. Sure. 
She could have, but that's not the point of that particular essay. She wasn't masturbating to thoughts of Cyrus, nor was she secretly wishing she could be touching her sibling inappropriately while touching herself. The pair just happened to be in the same place when it happened, not unlike the college roommate who has sex with her boyfriend in the bed beside you. Dunham touching herself when she happened to be sharing a bed wasn't predatory. It was a teenager being horny while inconveniently having to share her room with a younger sibling. I agree with all that. One of my pet peeves with celebrities, though, is that when they try to get attention for something knowing it'll get attention and then kind of whinge when that attention comes and isn't wholly positive. It became clear quite quickly that Lena needed to respond more thoughtfully to these accusations, even if some of them were based on false details. In an exclusive piece for Time, she wrote this. I am dismayed over the recent interpretation of events described in my book, Not That Kind of Girl. First and foremost, I want to be very clear that I do not condone any kind of abuse under any circumstances. Childhood sexual abuse is a life-shattering event for so many, and I have been vocal about the rights of survivors. If the situations described in my book have been painful or triggering for people to read, I am sorry, as that was never my intention. I am also aware that the comic use of the term sexual predator was insensitive, and I'm sorry for that as well. As for my sibling, Cyrus, they are my best friend, and anything I have written about them has been published with their approval. Yeah, Lena also cancelled two events on her European book tour in light of the backlash. As for that Truth Revolt article, Lena's lawyers demanded that it be retracted and that the site issue a public apology to Lena as per The Hollywood Reporter. The story is false, fabricated and has the obvious tendency to subject my client to ridicule and to injure her in her occupation, her lawyer wrote in his letter to the publication. The lawyers also threatened to sue the Truth Revolt for millions of dollars. Now, while the piece has since been removed from the internet, it's unclear whether they were ever actually taken to court. Mm. Now, there weren't the only controversies with this book that we need to talk about because the other controversy stemmed from a different story. In Not That Kind of Girl... Lena also revealed that when she was 19 years old, she was sexually assaulted and raped by a man that she calls Barry. She describes Barry, a pseudonym, as a Republican supporter that she knew when she attended Oberlin College. Mm, She also wrote about how she didn't recognise what had happened to her as rape until she pitched a version of the story in the girls' writing room and her fellow writers told her that they believed what happened to her was actually rape. I mean, that is something you hear from so many women who have gone through this. In the book, Lena wrote this, I'm not sure whether I can't stop it or I don't want to. At no moment did I consent to being handled that way. I never gave him permission to be rough, to stick himself inside me without a barrier between us. I never gave him permission. In my deepest self, I know this and the knowledge of it has kept me from sinking. Unfortunately for Lena, there was actually a real-life Barry who was a current student at Oberlin College and identified as Republican, as per The Guardian. Once this Barry felt the description matched him too closely and began legal action over the damage this could do to his reputation, publisher Random House said that it regrets the confusion and will clarify in future editions of the book that the choice of name is a pseudonym. According to The Hollywood Reporter, the real-life Barry had been pursued by reporters and others after his name matched that in the book, plus some other key descriptors. To be clear, in the disclaimer at the front of the book it was made clear that there were pseudonyms used Mm. throughout it. For his part, the real-life Barry released a statement. The last nine weeks since Not That Kind of Girl was published, spent both wrongfully accused and ignored, were frightening for me and my family. It was also baffling. As days turned into weeks and weeks into months, Random House and Miss Dunham's silence became unfathomable. Why didn't you clear my name? Why did you wait? Why did I have to set up a legal fund and threaten to sue in order for action to be taken? He went on, surely had my concerns not been ignored when I quietly and privately bought them to your representatives in October, your story would have remained focused on its true intentions, which I believe are noble. Unfortunately, because of the delay, my reputation has sustained irreparable harm. Wow. So what, he's saying, I raised this with you guys and you only cared when it became a PR issue. Not a PR issue, a legal one. Mm. Which, which I guess is both, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this might sound like a controversial opinion, but I'm not surprised by that. And in many ways, I mean, yeah, of course you would hope that a publisher would take action straight away, but I can't guarantee everyone would. You don't know if this is a guy that's actually trying to get something from you or a guy who feels his reputation is actually being harmed. Those are two very different things. A hundred percent. 
On top of Random House's statement, Lena wrote an essay for BuzzFeed titled Why I Chose to Speak Out. The essay read in part, when I finally decided to share my story, it had ambiguities and gray areas because that's what I experienced, because that's what so many of us have experienced. As indicated in the beginning of the book, I made the choice to keep certain identities private, changing names and some descriptive details. To be very clear, Barry is a pseudonym, not the name of the man who assaulted me, and any resemblance to a person with this name is an unfortunate and surreal coincidence. I am sorry about all he has experienced. I mean, you've got to keep in mind, Barry's a pretty rare name for this generation. Like, it does sound like she's gone for a pseudonym that's unlikely to appear in real life and it is a case of poor luck. Yeah, I agree. And I never want to kind of discount the experience of someone to say if if this Barry genuinely did feel he was getting calls from reporters and did genuinely feel like his reputation was being harmed, well, I wouldn't wish that on anyone. No. But there is another part of me that's like, well, for fucking hell, this is just unlucky. Yeah, and also like, and this are is we not, not the, giving the public enough credit? That's that the thing. If we're telling people these are pseudonyms, it's, are we not giving the public enough credit to be like, that's unfortunate that there is a barrier at the school currently? Yeah, at the school, which is a very big school. And oh, he's a Republican voter. Okay, well, so are 50% of Americans. Like yeah. they're the only Sometimes more than, yeah. key identifiers, which sort of frustrates me a little bit when it comes to this story. Beyond the obvious point of it distracts from like, a story that's important to tell. Now, Lena went on. Speaking out was never about exposing the man who assaulted me. Rather, it was about exposing my shame, letting it dry out in the sun. I did not wish to be contacted by him or to open a criminal investigation. I am in a loving and peaceful place in my life and I am not willing to sacrifice any more of it for this person I do not know, aside from one night I will never forget. That is my choice. Mm. Interesting to think about what this massive backlash said about how the world viewed Lena Dunham at this time, Mish? Yeah, well, look, right-winged commentators and people on the right hated her for everything she represented as far as, I think they thought she was too progressive, too feminist, all that kind of stuff. The left found her frustrating for this cycle of missteps and apologies As per Vox, Lena Dunham is often seen on the right as the representation of larger, widely reviled social and political trends. At the same time, Lena Dunham has become a lightning rod in a highly contentious debate on the feminist left about the way the movement is affected by race and class. Her success in branding herself as a voice of a generation has also become her greatest liability. Bang on that last line. Now... I gotta say, Mish, we got to leave Lena there for oh now. There's still so much more to cover on next week's episode. We're gonna be talking about those Jack Antonoff and Lord rumors, Lena's very peculiar and controversial approach to the Me Too movement, and how she became one of the most complicated celebrities of our generation. If you wanna to listen to part two right now, you guys know you can. Subscribe to Shay Moore on Spotify or Apple. Part two is live right now. If you don't want to do that, that's okay. You can wait till next Monday. That's so fine. This is a different kind of scandal series for us. It's crazy. Going through, I mean, I know we've been working on it, but reading out some of that stuff, I was like, oh, this is complicated it's stuff. very, very complicated. A massive thank you with all of that in mind to our research, Eilish Gilligan. This wasn't an easy one to put no. together, this series, and she's done amazingly. A big thank you as well to our audio producer, Annabelle Lee. We will be back in your ears on Thursday for another Pop Culture Wrap. Yeah. Bye, guys. Shameless Media. This podcast was recorded on Wurundjeri land. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse, if you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. 
there is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.